0: Welcome back to Everyday Holiness, a Faith Indie podcast brought to you by the Notre Dame Alumni Association. Again, this is your host, Dan Allen, Associate Director of Spirituality and Service. I'm pleased to welcome this week a married couple who is affiliated with Notre Dame, Patrick and Margaret Manning. Patrick is a triple domer, got his undergrad in 2007, his Master's of Education in 2009 with the ACE program, his MTS in 2011. And Margaret also spent some time at Notre Dame getting her Master's of Divinity degree in 2011. So, Patrick, Margaret, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having us. Thanks, Dan. All right, well, let's dive in. Margaret, I'll start with you. Can you tell us something about your childhood? What were some of the important moments there?
1: Sure. So, I I grew up in a pretty devoted Catholic family. My dad, actually, he spent eight years in Holy Cross formation in the seminary. Okay. Some at Stonehill where he did his undergrad, he did novitiate year, and then he did a couple of years of graduate theology. And um, a year away from being ordained a Holy Cross priest, he decided to leave. He took a pastoral year and then discerned not to be a priest. Mm-hmm. So we grew up in a, a household that had Holy Cross priests over for dinner all the time, as long as I can remember. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, mass every week, nothing, I'd say like extraordinary as some families that we know, like we didn't pray the rosary every night or anything like that. But whenever we went on vacation, we always found the church, always found the time. You know, I traveled all over for soccer and wherever we were for tournaments, we found a church and I had to like get pulled away from team dinner or hanging out in the hotel to go to mass with my parents type of thing. So, I mean, I think growing up, faith was always intertwined in in our, in our family. And I'm the youngest of six kids, seven kids, actually, but my parents lost a child. Mm. I had a a sister who was born, she, she would have been, I think, eight years older than me, but she, she died at the age of two in a really tragic accident. So Mm. I I think my parents' faith carried them through that, the the help of the Holy Cross fathers who counseled them. I really kind of credit my existence to to holy cross because a lot of couples get divorced after they lose a child right they just can't stay together with all the pain and yeah, the memories yeah. and and they just it's hard to work through that but there was a lot of csc priests who you know were very supportive all my dad's classmates and people some of the guys who are older now in their 70s now but who really were a big support for my family over the years so i think just seeing the The faith example in my parents Mm -hmm. and in those close family friends were looking back on it made a big impact. At the time, I was like, I don't want to leave my teammates and go find math somewhere. But yeah, but looking back on it now, it's uh, that was kind of the strong foundation for for my faith development.
0: Yeah, it's beautiful. Thank you for sharing. We hear that a lot from guests who say, well, it really wasn't anything remarkable, but it was something that was really consistent and that, mm-hmm. that's important, that it doesn't have to be this heroic virtue, but sometimes this ordinary virtue is enough to lay a foundation. And also, when these times of loss and suffering come, it does really provide a firm foundation, you know, do you hope, to be able to, to make it through. So thanks for sharing that. Patrick, how about for you?
2: Yeah, so similar story in, in some ways. I'm cradle Catholic, you know, raised, raised by Catholic parents, they took the trouble and made the sacrifice to always send us to, to Catholic schools. I, I attended Catholic schools, kindergarten through, what grade am I in now? Like 40 <laughs> or 32 or something like that. <laughs> so it's, yeah, so it was just, yeah, like you're saying, you know, the slow burn, like it, you know, it was, it was always there. You know, you ask about like key moments, things that stand out. Like I remember I got confirmed in the eighth grade, and there was nothing like spectacular uh, about my my catholic school elementary school although i think there were you know a lot of a lot of good things a lot of solid things and likewise the confirmation program but for whatever reason i just i just remember thinking at the time that i was going to be confirmed like yeah like i want to do this like mm-hmm. this this is something that that i want for myself and then i'd say that high school is probably really where I got, I don't know, faith, faith came alive or became even more important for a few different reasons. W- one, I, I attended a, a really excellent high school. So shout out to St. Ignatius High School in Cleveland. Okay. Just a really fantastic place yeah. in a lot of ways. You know, strong sense of the Ignatian spirituality and strong sense of, of mission and, and community. Really get, got involved in meaningful service there. We had a fantastic theology department. Your listeners will not be surprised to know to learn that many were Notre Dame alums. <laughs> so planting some seeds there, and at the same time, I was I stayed in, involved in my home parish largely through the youth group, and and had had a really good thing going on there, and. As a, as I've kind of like you know later on gone gone on and now in my work spent a lot of time wondering like you know why why people stay in the faith and why people leave I kind of look back at my own experience and wonder wonder what it was there because mm. you know it was nothing earth shattering for me but I I got to think that the youth group was really key because I those were also some of my my best friends and really wonderful relationships in, in that group and I I think that was really key for me.
0: Yeah, I would definitely like to touch on that. I think one of the challenges, and I was in catechetical work for a few years, one of the challenges of confirmation, especially when a lot of places might have it eighth grade or high school, early high school, that we would often say, well, confirmation is not graduation. But unfortunately, we saw a lot of people, young people fall away after receiving that confirmation. So yeah, what what can help make it stick, so to speak. And I think those relationships are are certainly key in that. Margaret, I, I imagine two relationships are really key in sports and, and soccer. What was your love of soccer about? and And how did that kind of factor into your makeup and who you became as a young person?
1: Yeah, so I decided to I played basketball also in, in middle school, but when I got to high school, I decided to only play soccer. Mm-hmm. So I played club during the off season of the soccer of, of the high school season. So I played played for the high school and then three, three other seasons played for the club. So I was, you know, all over New England every weekend playing different teams and I just loved it. I mean, I just had a lot of fun with it. I don't know if I gave it a whole lot of thought about how it's making me as a person, or how it's kind of forming my character, and then I, I think what was helpful in in terms of my faith development, though, there were a couple of other Catholic girls on my team, mm-hmm. and one of them went on this ecumenical retreat for the weekend. Okay, and she, I, I always, you know, I, I saw her, and I, I wanted to do it too. So we actually. Missed a game one weekend, which was kind of a, a big deal at the time because there was, I think, two or three of us that went on the retreat and missed a game. And that just seeing the the passion and the the faith on fire with young people and young adults on, on this retreat weekend was one of the stepping stones into my own faith development that kind of sprung me into college life and and getting involved with with campus ministry and stuff at that time. So I think soccer was more just love of the game and having fun. Sure. But also through that, I, I made a couple of faith friendships, too.
0: Great. Great. Thank you. And so thinking about college, did you think about playing soccer in college or what kind of factored into your college decision?
1: Yeah. So I did play soccer in college. So I went to Stonehill College, which is also a Holy Cross school. So sister school with Notre sure. Dame. And my first exposure to Stonehill was, I don't even know if I was in high school yet, but we went up there for a Jubilee celebration for a priest who was, you know, a good friend of my parents. Yeah. And my parents, I think, navigated this really well because later on they told me they really wanted me to go to Stonehill, but they didn't want me to know. They played it cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) They didn't want me to know that and didn't want to influence my decision. But just being around the campus, it's a gorgeous campus. And it was Division II soccer, which I felt like was my level. It seemed like a good fit. So the school was what I was looking for in terms of the size. And it, it was, it's kind of like a self contained campus. It's not in the city streets or anything like sure. that, which is what I wanted. And it was Catholic. So I wanted to keep that too. So I liked, I liked the school in general. I liked that I already knew some priests who were there. My dad went there, my cousin went there. And I played soccer my freshman year. And then decided not to play because I played mostly left bench
0: that freshman <laughs> year.
1: And so then I decided not to try out again sophomore okay. year. So I was really glad that I played, but I, I was also really glad that I stopped playing. Yeah. And, and I was glad that I chose a school for more than just a soccer team. Like I just loved the school. Sure. So then after I stopped playing soccer, then I was able to get more involved in campus ministry things and intramural sports and different service clubs and agencies around, around campus. So I was kind of one of the like stereotypical campus ministry kids. I I went on all the retreats, not that there was a ton. It's, you know, smaller programming than, you know, at Notre Dame or something, but did the retreats, did local service, went on service trips for the spring break, all that sort of stuff. But I'd say one of the most formative experiences was volunteering at this organization called my brother's keeper. And it's right next door to Stonehill. So there's a lot of like Holy Cross connections and Stonehill is kind of like a feeder of volunteers to go there. And My Brother's Keeper, what they do, their mission is a very simple statement. It's to bring the hope and love of Jesus Christ to those we serve. And the way that that is done is through the delivery of furniture and food to people who need it. So the staff members at My Brother's Keeper would take you know of three or four students in the vans and the trucks and make these deliveries. So we're bringing beds and furniture into people's homes and food and apartments, and we're we're just kind of seeing how some people live and some some families are you know yeah the kids have been sleeping on hardwood floor for three months and now they finally have a bed. So just to see the impact that service in the name of Christ can can have on people, but really on, on yourself, too. So I volunteered there, I th- I think it was for three years, but was super involved with them. And that kind of just sparked a, my strong desire to be in ministry, to be in service, to kind of just have that carry on throughout my whole life.
0: Yeah, that's really inspiring. And I, I do think that there's that element of service where... You come to give something, but you actually receive a lot in in the giving. And so glad you had that experience. Patrick, for you, you mentioned growing in your faith and love of service in high school. And I assume that that led to thinking about Notre Dame. But can you give us some insight into that decision to come to Notre Dame?
2: Yeah, coming from a Jesuit high school, obviously they were pushing the the Jesuit (laughs) colleges pretty hard. (laughs) And Notre Dame was the one... Non Jesuit college that I applied to, so so I always kind of chuckled when people would refer to Notre Dame mistakenly as a Jesuit school because the Jesuits get credit for every Catholic university. Right. I feel like, <laughs> but yeah, no, I had I had applied to you know to a handful of other schools and was actually pretty set on going somewhere else. Notre Dame always seemed like a little bit of of a dream. I visited as a I think as a high school senior and had that experience that so many people talk about that there was you know there was just something about the campus mm-hmm. you know is that, that Notre Dame feel in spite of the fact that it was a typical gray rainy <laughs> march south bend day right. still had the allure somehow so you know I, so I had a good visit but I kind of thought that it was sort of a dream even when I got the acceptance letter that point I was still thinking well that's nice I can tell my kids one day that I got into Notre Dame but I'll never be able to afford it Mm -hmm. but Notre Dame actually ended up doing real real well by me in the end and so that kind of it opened the door and I walked through when it became a real possibility it was pretty it was pretty clear to me that that's where I was going
0: that's great yeah it's it's fun to hear those stories and kind of nodding my head at <laughs> some aspects of that, knowing that a lot of people have received that gift of Notre Dame and, you know, especially sometimes the financial aid and those things make it possible. What were some things that you were involved in that you helped you really come into your own as a person while you were a student here?
2: A lot. I really owe a lot to Notre Dame. I, I think I got to start with my dorm. I was in Siegfried Hall and immediately had an incredible community, you know, really a group of of brothers there in many ways that, you know, the faith was at the center, just the experience of those dorm masses Mm -hmm. on Saturday nights. We had a fantastic rector and Father John Conley. Mm -hmm. He, at that point, he'd already been doing it a long time and and just had a great, a great handle on how to run the dorm, but also how to build relationships with, with the guys. And he definitely did that with me. And he, at, at a number of crucial points, I think he he, he saw something in me that I that I didn't yet see in myself and it mm. was very and very encouraging along the way so yeah my experience in in Siegfried was was definitely key was like like Margaret very involved in in campus ministry got hired on there I think my sophomore year and I remember kind of a funny exchange sometime later with Mary Olin who you was know, one of the
0: a legend, a legend of campus ministry. The yeah. legend,
2: <laughs> Molen. Yes. and I remember, I don't know, like how far down the road talking with her one time, and she, and she made a comment about how she like she doesn't normally hire the the campus ministry rats, uh, you know, to like to work the desk kind of thing. Yeah. And I'm like, so you know, so so how'd I end up here? Because I definitely was one of those people. She's like, oh, I just loved you, <laughs> so, so I got in somehow. So spent a lot of time around there, but also I guess somehow bridged the divide that at least at that time was some sometimes there at Notre Dame where you'd have like the campus ministry crew, and then across the way you'd have like the the CSC the service crew. Yep. But I really kind of spent equal time in in both places. Did a got to do a, a service project my my sophomore going into my junior year and. Spent some time on on Staten Island teaching and and working with a an enrichment program there, so you know the service continued to be a theme all the way through, and I'd say my major too. I was I was in the program of liberal studies, mm-hmm. which again kind of the a, an ironic twist of my story is I remember as a high school senior getting literature from. St. John's, which is one of these schools that like, if you go there, like the like the the curriculum is is the great books. Right. Like that's what everyone does. There's no choice. There's no wiggle room. And I remember seeing that and thinking, man, that looks intense. <laughs> I, no, thank you. And then I go to Notre Dame and get evangelized by a sophomore in, in my uh, in my wing of the dorm. And I end up doing exactly that same thing. And, and I couldn't have been happier with it. It was just an opportunity to really kind of think through the the big questions in life, and again have you know a really neat community with the, the small group of people in in the program. So yeah, just you know just had really really great small communities every step of the way, and uh, and yet even I remember getting to my senior year, and forming like a really a really great group of friends who even more so than like any anyone else i'd been or any group i'd been hanging out with up to that point it was clear that like christ was really at the at the center for for these people Mm -hmm. and i remember thinking probably as graduation was creeping up like this is unfair like why did why why did i only find these people in in our final years we're all getting ready to leave yeah I don't know. I guess I mean probably we weren't the same people when we started. Definitely we we weren't. I remember it being a, a real a real gift to be around those kind of people and it's something it it's it's all, it's almost like a mountaintop kind of experience that that I still look, look back to and and really I'm really grateful for for those years and for that those kind of people.
0: Yeah, that's always a blessing to look back on those things and I mean, you knew it was important at the time, but you cherish it even more as as the years go by, and you know, see people go in their own ways and flourish, and all those things. Margaret, for you though, campus ministry, my brother's keeper, the service—did that all lead towards the MDiv program, and how did how did that all come together?
1: Yeah, ultimately. So there was a campus minister, Judy Henry McMullen, at Stonehill, and Judy was pretty influential for for my, I guess, uh, like professional ministry formation. Mm -hmm. I looked up to her a lot. She was great. And I could see myself in her role. I could see myself being a campus minister one day. And I, I, I enjoy, you know, working with that age group at the time I was that age group. So I was talking to Judy one day, probably my sophomore year, maybe, or junior year. And I was like, you know, I could really see myself doing this? And she said, well, you should get a Master of Divinity.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I'd never heard of that, but it sounded pretty cool. <laughs> so then I I started looking at programs and the director of campus ministry, Father Jim Fenstermacher at the time, he was like, well, you should look at, at Notre Dame. So I, f- I think I first contacted Notre Dame MDiv my junior year just to touch base, you know, kind of see where my prerequisites stand, what do I need to do to, to make it happen type of thing. So I'd say the campus ministry staff helped guide me towards looking into an MDiv and just knowing that there was one that was also a Holy Cross, like uh, getting a Holy Cross education. That was obviously a big attraction to me. Mm -hmm. So yeah. So senior year, I was able to take care of my philosophy prerequisites and and things like that. So it kind of set me up to, to be able to apply.
0: And, and so the very next year you came to the MDiv program?
1: No. So back, Back in my day, the MDiv <laughs> required a year of service or ministry experience or something like that before. Sure. Right now now it's it's different. You can go right in from undergrad, but but back then we had to do a year of, of ministry, which I was planning on doing anyway. Like my brother's keeper was kind of a stepping stone to that. I wanted to do something like that full time for a year. Got it. So my plan was to go into Holy Cross Associates, which was a service program a couple communities around the country where you know you live in community and you do direct service to the poor so I come back from my summer after junior year and one of the first things that Judy the campus minister told me was Holy Cross Associates is disbanding it's not going to exist okay and I was like (laughs) well what what am I going to do now so then, you know, there's that, I forget the the name of it, but there's a directory of faith-based post-grad service programs. Mm-hmm. So one of those booklets was, hang, you know, hanging around campus ministry. And I just started at the beginning of the alphabet. And I think on the second page was Andre House. And I see Andre House. It's got like it's a, a little description about it. It's got the address and phone number and contact info. And then the director, Father Bill Walks CSC. Mm. And so I turned to my campus miniatures i was like there's another holy cross thing out there like
0: (laughs) these guys are everywhere i
1: was like this is what so so you know that was an attraction so i could you know keep keep the connection with holy cross so during my senior year i applied to be on the the core staff the postgraduate service program at, at andre house and part of that Process is going for an interview and being there for a week so you can really see what the work is like because it's kind of intense. Andre House is a hospitality center for the poor and homeless in in Phoenix, Arizona. So it was, you know, it involves doing laundry for the guests, distributing clothing, kind of manning an office where people can make phone calls or get a blanket or get some Tylenol, mm-hmm. and then the big thing. That each staff member is in charge of is one day of of the soup line, which is coordinating volunteers and preparing and serving a dinner for anywhere between five and eight, 900 guests a night, 900 meals a night. Guests can go back through more than once. But there were some nights I I saw over a thousand. So, you know, you kind of come for your interview week, experience everything and then have have an interview with the staff at the end of the week to kind of just see if it's a good fit for both of you. And I loved it. I love the work. I love the people, the people that I met. I love the community aspect of it, living in the house with the other housemates. So it was it was a great week. And then I, I got the call a week later, and they accepted me. So after graduation at Stonehill, I went and did a year of at Andre house. So that was kind of my plan all along to do a year of service. But it also, you know, worked out that it was required for the MDiv.
0: Got it. Yeah, I'm sure that. I was very impactful. I've had the chance to visit down there once and it's you know, pretty breathtaking. Sometimes the poverty that you see, but also the depth of love that you see in mm-hmm. the staff for the people there. Mm-hmm. So glad to share that with our audience. Patrick, you talked about this sort of regret or, or just disappointment that You'd had this beautiful experience your last year of Notre Dame. Did that lead you to thinking, well, maybe I could stay here a little bit longer with these uh, these other degrees? Or
2: uh, how, did that all, how did that all transpire? How many more degrees can I do <laughs> yeah, exactly. in this place? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no. So as you're alluding to, I, I sort of stuck around and did the ACE program. But the, the seeds of uh, that had actually been planted my senior year. Because, as I said, I, I, had, I had thought I was heading somewhere else for my undergrad. Mm-hmm. I had looked at one of the other Jesuit universities. I looked at St. Louis University. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I was down there for a weekend visiting with a guy from, from my high school. And he had just come back from, this, from a retreat. And so back in those days, remember, we would like make CDs, you know, mix (laughs) CDs for, you know, for the retreat. And so he he took out this one that they had for for that retreat that weekend. And he said, you got to listen to the song. And so it turns out it was a version of one by U2 Mm -hmm. that was recorded when they played a concert at Notre Dame. Hmm. And in the beginning of that song. Bono's kind of going through like a litany of like what it, what it looks like to change the world. And he, he includes in there a shout out to Father Scully and the ACE program. Mm. And so that was the first time I I had heard of ACE, but I, I knew um, already, or was at least was thinking when I got to Notre Dame that I, that I wanted to be a teacher. Like I said before, I was really inspired by some of the the teachers in my theology department and in my high school my plan my thought at that time was to get my degree and then just go back to my high school and and teach there but in the meantime i i heard about this ace program and heard that they make really good teachers and i said well i want to be a good teacher and so i kind of even from the time that i first stepped foot on Notre Dame campus. I was thinking this is probably what I was going to do when I graduated, mm-hmm. and, and and that in fact is, is is what happened. They fortunately they they accepted me, and and I and I got to do it, and that that also was an incredibly formative experience.
0: Good, yeah. We've had a lot of ACE alums on on the podcast, so I know that they are changing the world. They have been world changing folks. So then, did you think about? Adding the MTS to to go back and teach theology, or was there a PhD thought in there? How did that kind of build on to to where you ended up being for your further education?
2: Yeah, that was not. It was not the PhD was not, nor the MTS was was part of the the original master plan. Okay, you know I mentioned Father Father John Connolly, my rector in Siegfried, and he at in my towards the end of my senior year, I think it was. He, we were out to lunch and he made some comment about, you know, how he could see me doing a PhD. And I remember totally brushing that comment aside, <laughs> thinking, I, I don't want to do that. You know, I already had my my plan of just teaching like high school theology for the rest of my life. Yeah. I didn't even finish my first year of ACE before I was starting to to get an inkling that I was maybe being called to something a little bit different. I, I mean, it, it, ACE was hard, my school was very challenging, but I, but I did enjoy what, what I was doing there. If, if there are even s- still some days where I kind of romanticize about what it would be like to, to be a high school teacher. <laughs> but I, I, just, I just had a feel, I mean one, I, this, it was the first time that day in and day out I was at the front of the classroom being expected to, to teach young people uh, about the Catholic faith. Mm-hmm. And in spite of being a Notre Dame theology major and a cradle Catholic and all that, I, I still did not feel fully and adequately prepared hmm. to do that. Mm-hmm. So that was part of it, is that even that first year, I, I said, I I want to go study this more and understand this stuff better if I'm going to be up here teaching other people that that this is the truth. Yeah. But also through ACE, one of the wonderful things about the program is were in this group of teachers who were sent all over the country, and so you you get kind of a bird's eye view of Catholic education across the whole country. And because of that, I I was becoming more aware of of issues, you know, just kind of the trends in in, in Catholic education and uh, understanding, you know, what was what was good and where where there were some challenges, uh, where there was area for improvement. And there too, kind of having a, a feeling that you know, maybe maybe I'm being called to be involved in Catholic education in, in a way that goes beyond just just my own classroom. So yeah, so that I kind of both those reasons that's that's that had me thinking. All right, I'm I'm going to go and do you know some kind of PhD. I quickly learned, you know, slow down, buddy. You can't just jump into a PhD. You got to get a master's first. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's what sent me back to Notre Dame for the MTS.
0: Okay. And then, what did you end up deciding on to do for your PhD?
2: It was just one of these great moments in life where a, a door opened up, and you know the the light <laughs> shone down upon <laughs> me so clearly. At the time that I was an ACE, I I wanted to do something that was bringing together theology and and education. Mm-hmm. I you know I wanted I I wanted to to be in a position I wanted to have the competency to to give guidance to people. Like, what what does it really mean to to do education well in a Catholic context. And at the time, I thought I was gonna have to choose. Like, I I knew there were PhDs in education, I knew there were PhDs in theology, and I figured I was gonna have to go one way or the other and kind of, you know, muddle the other part. Mm -hmm. It was when I was at Notre Dame doing my MTS that I learned about this program at Boston College in theology and education. And I said, "Eureka! That's exactly what I yeah, what I want to do." Sure. Uh, even though I had not known it, it existed before that, and so and there, I mean, there. If I didn't know about it, it's because there aren't that many of these kind of programs across the country. Fordham has one. Catholic, U had one at, at the time. So I looked at some different places, but but did end up at at uh, Boston College for that as a PhD in theology and education.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, great. Thank you for that, Margaret. When you came to the MDiv program, did it live up to your expectations of, hey, this is a useful kind of degree? This is going to help me get into ministry and kind of get exposed to that?
1: Short answer is yes, but I want to back up a second because I, so I, you know, I, I'm at Andre House in Phoenix and I took the GREs a couple times. I, you know, sent in my application and the first week of April, I get my email response and i did not get into the mdiv okay so i want to bring that up because i feel like the holy spirit has been just intertwined with a lot of my life in these steps like leading up to the present and i feel like that the rejection letter from notre dame was a big part of that because I kind of, it hit me hard because, you know, I'm, I'm coming from Stonehill. It's a sister school. Like there's a, there's all this, the congregation connection. I had had great letters of recommendation. I had good grades, but my GRE scores were terrible.
0: Mm.
1: Problematic. (laughs) Problematic. And um, (laughs) that was, that was the feedback I got. So, you know, I, I I kind of took it hard at first but then I emailed the director and I was like what can I do to to strengthen my application for next year and he said you know work on the GRE scores and maybe don't put all your eggs in one basket like look at other MDiv programs and see what might be a good fit okay cuz I'm not an academic I married one but I'm <laughs> I I'm, I'm not academically minded okay. so I totally understood that you know this is not quite my caliber of of academics, you know. So I finished on my Andre House year figuring, you know, I'm going to stay in Phoenix. I'm going to just get a job here and then I can volunteer at Andre House and support the staff and just kind of be around this wonderful community that I developed there
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and loved doing the work. I had some job interviews. I had an apartment all lined up to to share an apartment with a friend. And I, I picked up the key to her apartment so I could start moving stuff in. And that day... I got an email saying, if you're still interested in the MDiv, a spot has opened up because someone has left the program. Hmm. Please call me as soon as possible. So I, like, I called right away. I was like, yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and he's like, wow, that was a fast response. I was like, I am not delaying <laughs> the <laughs> response. When you get an email like that, you call right away. Yeah. So about four weeks before the semester began, maybe even three weeks, it was the end of July when I got that notification. So yeah, 3 weeks before the semester began, I, I had to plan to move out to Indiana and get everything all set up. So, that being said, the Holy Spirit was kind of guiding me through that sure. and when I got to Notre Dame and and started the MDiv, I quickly learned that it was a, it was a good fit in terms of community support and my classmates were great and really like just like a really great environment all around. I did I think the rejection letter was kind of always in the back of my mind. Like, mm. can I hang with this crowd? Like, I'm not, I'm not the same like intelligence level as people. Mm. I was just feeling pretty insecure. Yeah,
0: imposter syndrome.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I felt like that was kind of always hanging over my head. But I hung in there and graduated. <laughs> yeah, bees get, de- get degrees, right? <laughs> right. So no, it, it was a really perfect fit. And then when it comes to the the ministry preparation. What I liked best about our MDiv program, as opposed to maybe other schools, is first semester, first year, you dive right into a ministry placement. So you know you're in the field doing different ministry placements. You're learning from your classmates and what their experiences are at the different different field placements. So it really just gives you gave me a a a quality, top notch education, Mm -hmm. great formation with the community of of lay students and seminarian students. Mm That that's another big thing that I, I really appreciate about our MDiv is the fact that we had classmates who were in the seminary because mm-hmm. it it was so mutually beneficial, and then you know we all go on to work in ministry whether that's parishes or schools or hospital chaplains or whatever
0: mm-hmm.
1: we're collaborating with with priests and, and lay people so it was just a perfect preparation I think for that so yeah so I think I think the MDiv you know all the different pillars of the ended like the formation, the education, the pastoral experience. It was wonderful formation for for going into ministry.
0: Yeah, well, I appreciate your honesty in that and your perseverance and, and the gift that you were able to give as the Holy Spirit guided you here. Patrick, I assume that you met Margaret during your mutual time in grad school. What do you remember about that? And how did things kind of start to progress? Like, uh, maybe there's something
2: more here. So Christ brought us together, um, <laughs> more specifically, Bob Creek's Christology class, <laughs> which, I, which I took in, I think, my first semester okay. in, in the MTS there. And this would have been more entertaining if you asked Margaret. The, go ahead, Margaret. I'm going to jump in on this. Ahead, all right, take yeah. It, take it away. Take all it. Right.
1: First of all, since everyone's calling me Margaret, I just want to clarify for our listeners that my nickname is Boof. So... Everybody who knew me at Stonehill and Andre House and Notre Dame professors, classmates, everybody called me Boof. So um, just in case, you know, that helps clarify
0: things. Because your maiden name was Margaret Bufard. Bufard. Yes, yes. Yeah, so my
1: Booth. maiden name is Bufard. So yeah. everyone called me Booth. Great. And so feel free to call me Booth, Will do. Dan. <laughs> so... My first impression of Patrick, this is my first impression. So we're in Christology class and there was, we had a break halfway through the class, just like a 10 minute stretch break or whatever. And this is my second year of the MDiv, Patrick's first year of the MTS. So by now, like I've already established some good friendships. We, you know, built up our MDiv community, you know, interacted a little bit with the MTS students, but, you know, not as tight as the MDiv. Mm -hmm. So during this break i'm just kind of standing at my desk and i look over and along the wall my classmate margaret this is why booth is important because there was two markets yes. in my class so margaret is talking to this guy and i mean margaret was already talking to a couple of mdivs and then this guy comes walking up and is like trying to butt into the conversation a little bit and i'm like who is this dude like he's trying too hard to to make friends here like what is going on this guy is <laughs> guy's odd
2: and that was me (laughs) that was patrick (laughs)
1: but little did i know that margaret also did ace with patrick so like they had already known each other and they had already talked like hey let's like we need to hang out mts mdiv we gotta like bridge the gap we all need to hang out together and and whatever so that was that was my first impression of patrick and uh you know that's the rest is history
2: (laughs) so in spite of that we persevered (laughs) (laughs) yeah our our common friend margaret and i had we were friends from before and we've been talking over the summer about like yeah we these are like good groups of people who don't always hang out together and maybe we could bring them together so you know so there was some of that and margaret had a was boof to clarify (laughs) was had a had a great house had some great roommates that she was living with and they were Good enough to to host a group of us a, a couple of times, so I was over there one night for like you know we were watching a movie or something like that, and so you know just kind of like it, they had a good thing going on. I appreciate that, and I said like you yeah, know it's a great place, you great people, and Boof said something about like uh yeah well you know you're welcome anytime, come on by. I'm like all right you know maybe I will, and so we you know we'd hang out with the group. I would go over there and we would just study and. And as, as time went on, yeah, as you said, Dan, there was a thought, well, maybe, maybe there's something more here Mm -hmm. because it's, I'll just say, I mean, with, with Margaret from the beginning and as our relationship progressed, I mean, I had this experience of, I, I was just more comfortable with her than I had ever been with, you know, probably just about anyone else Mm -hmm. in in my life. Mm -hmm. And part of that is just her, her gift and the beauty of who she is, that she Everywhere she goes, she has that knack of putting people at ease and, and making people feel feel comfortable. I thought that was a really beautiful thing. And I liked the person I was able to be around her. And so, yeah, those were good reasons for me to see how far this thing would go. Yeah. And so now here we are about to celebrate our 10th anniversary pretty soon. 10 years. Okay. Yeah, I was going to ask when
0: in the timeline booth did... Did you actually get married what were some of those early years like?
1: We dated for the remainder of my MDiv and his MTS. So we dated for about 2 years, got engaged, and so after we graduated, this this is where the Holy Spirit also comes in okay. because if I hadn't gotten into Notre Dame the when I did, we would not have graduated at the same time. Right. So because of that, we were able to graduate at the same time. He got into Boston College for the PhD. So we both moved to Massachusetts. I was very excited about that because we were very close to Stonehill. So I got to reconnect with my college friends and a couple of my high school friends were, were up there. I grew up in Connecticut, but sure. a couple of my high school friends were up in Massachusetts. So so we moved out to Boston and then we that first year we, we were engaged and then the following summer we got married. And while Patrick was getting his Ph.D., I worked at a parish about a half an hour south of Boston as I started as a youth minister, so I was a youth minister for four years, working with high school, middle school youth, and then also running the confirmation program and some summer trips. We brought kids to ND Vision. And then my last year at the parish, I transitioned to be pastoral associate, kind of overseeing all of the adult ministries.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So we got married at the church where I w- was working. So we made both families travel, which that was fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> my family from Connecticut, his family from Cleveland. and But yeah, so one year out of the mdif we got, we got married. Mm-hmm.
0: Great. And then I know we chatted beforehand about your kids. When did kids come along and what were some of those lessons like?
1: Yeah. So we wanted to kind of have a couple of years to settle into married life and just enjoy ourselves. I would say <laughs> just enjoy time together. Uh-huh. So the plan all along was to, you know, maybe have kids two or three years into our, into our marriage. So we had our first child, Emily, up in Boston. And kind of a funny situation with that is after Patrick finished his PhD, he, he wasn't able to find a, a job teaching as a professor that first year. So we stayed at Boston College for an extra year. Mm-hmm. And he got this gig as resident minister. So we lived in a dorm <laughs> and we kind of he was technically the resident minister, but we kind of tag team, sure. you know, hosting students for events and stuff in the dorm so our daughter's first home was living in a dorm with like i don't know 800 sophomores how many Mm -hmm. people lived in that dorm it was a big dorm and it was known as like the party dorm on campus so we i don't know she's a great sleeper i think that might have had part of it to do with it because we had these this like six man boys suite above us that were just rowdy 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 so anyway so emily emily spent the first like seven months of her life living in a dorm at Boston College. Hmm. And and then we moved down to New Jersey, where we're at now. Patrick is teaching at Seton Hall University, but he'll get it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, we had Emily. And then I think the plan was like every two years, you know, that seems to be like a good spacing. So after Emily, we, we got pregnant two years later. At about like I don't know six or seven weeks, we started telling our families mm-hmm. and FaceTiming Patrick's family in Cleveland and everything to to tell them that Emily's going to be a big sister. And then a couple of days after making those phone calls, we we had a miscarriage. Mm. Like we started having a miscarriage, yeah. so that was that was really tough. I think it really hit me harder than Patrick. I mean, it it was tough for both of us, but sure. he he says that it really hit me harder and. It was just really difficult, even for me to be around Emily for some time. Like I, I told Patrick, I was like, "Take her to a park." Like I just need, I just can't be around her right now. It was just a sadness, like a depth of sadness that I have never experienced. Mm. And I lost my dad six months earlier, so like we knew some grief in our life, yeah. And I've and I've never felt anything like like this one.
0: Mm.
1: So that was that was really difficult and. I think going off of my parents' example of turning to their faith during tragedy and tough times, yeah. we tried to like navigate that through through our faith. So we ended up having a priest friend come over to our house and we did a little prayer service where we read some scripture and, and did some prayers, but then also like kind of made a little sacramental in our home to, to remember this baby that we never met. Hmm. And I think... The holy spirit continued to to be a part of all of that because um shortly after that i was at work at at the parish near boston and i was i don't know i was talking to someone in the archdiocese office and they have we were talking about something else but she mentioned that she wanted to do like a a morning prayer service for couples who had lost a a baby like through a miscarriage or a stillbirth or something like that Mm -hmm. And I was like, I would love to help with that. So that kind of sparked, I don't know, maybe my my outreach or kind of putting myself out there to to reach out to other couples because it's it's something that I think a lot of people suffer in silence yeah. and and mm-hmm. it's very isolating and it's a hidden thing. Like you 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 can't necessarily tell that someone's going through a miscarriage. Mm-hmm. So so I helped out with that prayer service up in Boston and ended up writing a, a reflection just to get all my thoughts out and patrick helped edit and craft it and and it was published in america magazine which which also sparked a lot of people reaching reaching out to me around the country and yeah. even someone from canada emailing me to, to talk about that so i found a lot of healing through helping others like that i, I don't know at that's that's what worked for me. I know other couples you know they need to find other outlets or just kind of work between the two of them or something like that but but I think that that just having that conversation shortly after the miscarriage was was a way the Holy Spirit was like, hey, you know giving me opportunities to to be a wounded healer mm-hmm. type of type of figure and and down in new jersey there's there's been some opportunities for me to to share that as well so
0: yeah, it's, a, it's amazing how God uses those experiences, sometimes really hard ones, other times mm-hmm. more joyful ones to spur us onward to kind of share that, bear the load with others, those kinds of things. It, and it reminds me, I guess, Patrick, you talked about in your early life, this this idea of your faith stuck with you even after during the sacraments of uh, confirmation, and you were kind of wondering why, and then we we were going to touch on that. That led to you know you kind of use that experience to lead you in your own study and ministry and in the academy. Can you talk a bit about that? How, how you kind of use that experience to inform what
2: you're what you're doing? So as Margaret, first of all, as Margaret said, I I teach in in the, in the seminary for the archdiocese of Newark, which is located on the the Seton Hall campus. Okay. Uh, I teach pastoral theology there, so classes on on catechesis and evangelization and, and things like that. And so, yeah, in my in my work, I you know I spend a lot of time thinking about how to invite people into a into a living relationship with God, and spend a lot of time asking questions about, you know, why do people take the paths that they that they do? You know, even among Catholics, like there, there's so many stories and so many people I've known who. You know they're raised in a Catholic family, seemingly like like my own, and yet now that now they have nothing to do with with their faith. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, so it's just always been an interesting question for me, like why why do people go the way they go? And yeah, so I, I'd say you know one thing that that is is a really strong theme in the research that I've seen and and done is is the importance of relationships that. For, you know, for young people, it's it's really important. Like the, the role of parents is really important, but also for just uh, what they call trusted adults, you know, someone who they can go to and just kind of break down or ask difficult questions, you know, not, not feel like they're being judged, but someone who they know is going to really listen to them and, and affirm them. Peer relationships are, are important, too, but it's actually those adult relationships that are even more more important so I'd say for me it's seeing this in my research and then kind of looking back I'm like oh, okay I guess that you know I guess that makes sense because I can I can see those things in my own story mm. and I'd, I'd say you know even you know probably even more so in my adult years when I think about why am I still Catholic why you know why why do I throw in my my lot with this why is this so important to me i mean the people in my life have have everything to do with that mm-hmm. it's um you know I, I, I talked a bit about that friend group in my senior year at, at notre dame and i said it's you know it's a little bit of a of a mountaintop experience but it you know I, my recollection is that this is just a group of people who were like really and truly alive who were happy who were the pe- kind of people you wanted to be around they were good friends They were interesting like they cared deeply about things they were they were committed to serving other people you know it's just the kind of people that you want to be around that you that you want to be like and i've been fortunate in my life to to continue to find those people uh, and i definitely seek them out as as well and that's I, i think that's crucial to me because those people are the kind of signs that you know the sacraments of the faith you know that's they are where you know i see christ continue to be, you know, incarnated in our world. And, you know, especially in, in times that are difficult or when I'm just kind of falling down on my face, it's really helpful to be surrounded by those those kind of people to remind me about who I want to be and to have those people who can kind of carry me in some ways when I'm not doing a great job of carrying myself. Mm-hmm. So those kind of experiences that I definitely try and bring to my teaching at the seminary and try to to share with other people that you know obviously there's lots of great things that you can do with with programs and you know you try and be a good teacher and a good preacher and all those different things, but the quality of the relationships that that you are forming is for me just the the truly crucial variable in, in all that.
0: Yeah, those relationships are so central and it's what I really enjoy about the podcast is I get a little glimpse into people's lives and the relationships that have been so important. And I think it really relates to our overall topic of holiness, that we have relationships with people in our lives who are models of holiness for us. And we also have, you know, relationships with the saints and, uh, you know, others who have gone before us, who've, who've shown us the way, obviously a little bit different uh, relationship in that way, but still there's that connection there. So Buf, I'll start with you. Who have been some of the really important models of holiness that have shown you what it means to live a holy life?
1: One saint that I've I've had a strong devotion to for a, a long time is uh, Brother Andre Bissett. So started a little bit with getting introduced to him at Stonehill because he's a Holy Cross brother, and now he's the the first saint for the congregation. Mm-hmm. But I really got to know the life of of Brother Andre and kind of the the impact and the way that his legacy is carried out when I was at Andre House in Phoenix, which is named after him. Mm -hmm. So it's a combination of of Brother Andre, but he also lived out a mantra that I heard a lot at my brother's keeper. And that was that God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. And I look at Brother Andre's life You know, an uneducated person, a sickly person, an orphan person, a person who got rejected from the congregation when he initially applied. Hmm. But now look at the extraordinary things that God has done with this seemingly ordinary person.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, So Brother Andre is a big is a big one for me. And thanks to a grant from Notre Dame, I was actually able to attend his canonization in Italy when I was in the MDiv. So that was. Wow. That was pretty pretty profound experience and just kind of deepened my devotion to him. Certainly my my parents and their example, which I've talked a little bit about before. But I'd say my current faith role model is is Patrick here. Hmm. I I look up I look up to him a lot in this sense. He's just a, a very thoughtful and intentional person and very disciplined. So he carves out scheduled prayer time every day he he prioritizes that he does a great job of integrating the faith and teachings with our kids and our everyday life and you know just daily moments and things like that so we we now have three kids wonderful so yeah patrick patrick is a big one patrick brother andre my parents i say those are the biggest influences but there's a lot of like you know just Little people who just in little th- little ways are, are examples to me. I, for instance, when we moved down to New Jersey, I, I worked at a parish for five years. But I recently left that parish and I started a new job a couple months ago as a hospice chaplain. Hmm. So I'm working with patients who are terminally ill and like very close to death. Sometimes we we get them in and it's within a day or two. Yeah, and it's a lot of outreach to their families and supporting their families. I had a patient last week who was just kind of viewing everything as a miracle like this happened but then god sent you through walking through the door or this happened and then god provided this and so even in just everyday interactions like that I, I try to i try to grab those like nuggets of of faith examples and and carry those those with me
0: wow that's very inspiring patrick how about for you
2: yeah i you know i definitely have had my you know different saints throughout throughout my lifetime who've inspired me definitely coming from a, a jesuit school you know saint ignatius and i i continue to be really grateful for that that gift of ignatian spirituality i give a shout out to uh pls classmate paul mitchell he has a really wonderful children's book called audacious ignatius that i highly recommend uh, to the families out there yeah so another Soren starts at school.
0: Yeah, we had Paul and his sister on the podcast talking about their their second book with the Notre Dame stuff. Uh huh. Uh huh.
2: Yeah. All good stuff. All good stuff. Yeah. So you know, different different saints over time. I actually, you know, another quick story is I a good mentor in my time at Notre Dame was John Cavadini in in the theology department there. And uh, I remember one time chatting with him in, in his office, and and he's talking with me about the importance of of having a a relationship and a devotion to to mary and i don't know what was on my face but (laughs) something apparently because he kind of stops at one point and he says i'm giving your good advice and you're not listening
0: (laughs) (laughs) you should really take this to heart
2: Yeah. Yeah. And and I had, I mean, and I did, I confess it on the sword. I'm like, I, you know, I recognize that this is good advice. It's just like, not where I am. Like, I don't quite have that devotion, but it's, you know, it's come, it's come more in time as I've come to appreciate, you know, what Mary did and her openness to, you know, to literally allow God to enter the world mm-hmm. through her. And, you know, I, I think of some, as something that, that we're all invited to and in, in our own way, you know, not quite as dramatic, but, you know, I believe this, that, that God wants to enter the world through each of us every single day. And so that's definitely, you know, some inspiration that I take from from Mary. In terms of modern day saints, the person that always comes to mind for me, is uh, you know, another Notre Dame friend of ours, Ben Wilson, who I think I first got to know my sophomore year. We helped to lead a retreat together. He was another one of those people always hanging around campus ministry I remember being on this this retreat, which was an overnight, and I think some of some of us, the leaders, were kind of, like, scheming some pranks to play on on the retreat. And so I remember people at one point kind of, like, looking to Ben, like, you know, like, can we? Can we? Can we do it? Can we go through with it? And Ben just saying, you know, I think uh, we've already had a good laugh about it, and, uh, you know, I think we should just let this go. And I I remember at that moment thinking, like, this is a wise person, but <laughs> you know, at that point was, you know, he's probably a, a junior maybe, but yeah, I just remember thinking this is, this is a wise person that judgment has just been affirmed over and over as, as I got to know Ben better. And then his, his wife, Mary Ann, they, uh, they, for, they're kind of my model of domestic church and uh, the kind of uh, parents I, I, hmm. I strive to be because they're just deeply good people and tremendously loving and, and hospitable and uh, you know again the kind of people that that I want to be around and, and that I want to try and imitate myself.
0: Great, and I would say you know the same is is true for both of you because that's part of the reason why I asked you on the podcast is that. I think in hearing your story, I think people will be able to realize that Christ is the center of your relationship and that you help each other grow in holiness in your marriage, which I think is is what we all aspire to do. Those of us who are called to marriage, not everybody does it perfectly. And I'm sure you wouldn't claim that either, but that's the ideal. And so thank you for sharing your relationship with us on the podcast and a bit of your stories as as they've intertwined with each other and with uh, this institution it's been a really inspiring conversation and i've appreciated both of you and your time well thanks dan yeah thanks so much for having us yes it was a real pleasure well that concludes this episode of everyday holiness a faith indeed podcast as always, we invite you to rate the podcast if you enjoyed it, to share it with someone who you think might be inspired by this story and others that we've shared, to subscribe to the podcast, as well as to our daily gospel reflection, email at faith.nd.edu slash sign We thank you for being with us, and until next time, you'll be in our prayers. Thanks so much.